This is a Media Lab podcast. Whoa, 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 Cal. What, what the fuck are you doing, man? This machine is only saying seven things over and over and over again. It's like it's like it's stuck or something. Like, listen to this. Integrity, bravery, kindness, politeness, honesty, to enjoy the honor, to be loyal. I don't even know what any of this means. I like it. It's got a nice... It's got a nice message, Kyle. Uh, mm. I don't know what the message is telling me, but they are words. I feel like it's it's forcing me to commit seppuku. Seppuku. Am I saying that word right? Well, who knows? I'm not even... Is it, wh- I, you know what? I never understood the difference between sep- seppuku and harikiri. Well, one is a form of Japanese ritual suicide, and the other is a longtime sports announcer for the Chicago Cubs. In his own garage, Kyle has built a machine. Cobbled together with parts found in his friend's church basement and a dumpster behind the local Dairy Queen, this monstrosity is now alive and evil. Kyle has convinced his friend Dave to help stop the apocalypse by reviewing films the machine picks. The ultimate purpose is still unknown, and Kyle could have probably done this himself, but he's not being dragged to hell alone. This This is is Kyle and Dave Dave versus versus the machine. You know, you know who would know the answer to this? Obviously, Tom yes. Cruise. I'm sorry? Tom Cruise. <laughs> Tom Cruise? The Last Samurai? Uh, welcome to Kyle and Dave versus The Machine. My name is Kyle. I'm still Dave. And I'm The Machine. This is a podcast where a sentient machine forces us to watch movies in order to prevent it from initiating the apocalypse. Although we tend to talk about the ideas of the movie rather than the movie itself. Uh, today, Dave, we get to watch Ghost Dog. The Way of the Samurai. Sweet, sweet. A whole new century is coming, Louis. And Mr. Vargo wants every member of his family to make it a priority to erase this weirdo. This guy is a professional. Going after him could be very dangerous. Better him than you, right, Louis? Every day without fail, one should consider himself as dead. They're gonna whack you, Ghost Dog. If they don't find you, they're gonna whack me instead. Get the message off him. If a samurai's head were to be suddenly cut off, he should still be able to perform one more action with certainty. What is that supposed to mean? It's poetry. So Dave, uh, I'd love to know what your relationship with this film is. You know, we we dated back in high school. No, I um doesn't talk I, to me anymore though. I discovered this movie. I think yeah, I don't remember if this is true, but I think after what's the other one? Coffee and cigarettes, or yeah, the other Jim Jarmusch film. Yeah, never watched either in uh, in the theater. So this is uh, well after they had been uh, published. So I couldn't give you a date, but I'd heard that there was this uh, RZA pro- music produced urban, you know black samurai movie set in new york i'm like of course i have to watch that shit and i loved it i well mm-hmm. i remember loving it have we watched it yet no we haven't have we no not not yet not no yet. <laughs> yeah so no i remember uh loving it um i haven't watched it in a while i actually bought the digital video disc Whoa. version of it yes if i remember correctly after i conmarried uh shout out to my wife Helen Young, Kamari consultant. <laughs> okay, we're great. We've got that uh, off the list of things we have to do each episode. Check. Um, I Kamari the DVD yeah. uh, because I had a 
I digitized it, so I haven't watched it since I did that. So I probably should just throw it out. But uh, <laughs> I have a memory of thinking this was a very well, cool movie. Well, this is, when, again, I know the poster very well because I remember seeing it in uh, the store and like Blockbuster and stuff like that. I heard the name of it for sure, but I have never seen this movie. Not once. I've seen other Jim Jarmusch films. I kind of understand his like style and the feeling and tone that he gives to his movies. So I'm interested to see if that carries over to what is basically a samurai film. But who knows if it's going to hold up? You can't go. You can't go wrong with those two words, samurai and film. I mean, you're already starting at like a two star movie. <laughs> a samurai yeah. flick. That I'm going to go and watch. <laughs> <laughs> you know what? Even a flick. I'll take sure. a flick over some of the crap we've watched this year. All right, well, let's do this. Let's go and watch Ghost Dog, The Way of the Samurai. And then after we thank some sponsors, we'll come back and talk about it. Hi there, everyone. Yes, this is Kyle once again here to let you know about some of our sponsors and also trying to practice a little bit of mindfulness, a little bit of meditation, trying to follow that samurai way as I slowly drift into an existential stupor as I'm only left with my own thoughts. As always, Kyle and Dave vs. The Machine is a proud member of the Alberta Podcast Network, powered by ATB. The Alberta Podcast Network promotes and supports Alberta-made podcasts and connects their audiences with Alberta-based businesses and organizations. This episode of Kyle and Dave vs. The Machine is brought to you by Northwest Fest, Canada's longest-running non-fiction film festival. Northwest Fest can't happen in a movie theater this year, but the show must go on and it will. From May 8th to the 17th, Alberta residents can stream a selection of outstanding documentary films to their homes through Northwest Fest. Tickets are available now for all of the films showing, including The Euphoria of Being, a duet of sorts between a Holocaust survivor and an internationally acclaimed dancer. Or maybe you're more interested in Mr. Toilet, the world's number two man, a film about the man tasked with equipping India with public bathrooms. Either way, all films are geo-locked for viewing in Alberta only, so you have to live here to see them. Buy your tickets today at northwestfest.ca. Remember, the festival ends on May 17th, so don't delay. You have a few days left. Again, that's northwestfest.ca. This week, we're also brought to you by Inventures Unbound, the ultimate platform for innovators, investors, and industry to share, inspire, and interconnect virtually. Even in these times of distancing, connection and innovation are more important than ever. Inventures Unbound is brought to you by Alberta Innovates to ensure that innovators have opportunities to connect with ideas, investors, and industries from within our borders and reaching far beyond. Join the launch of a virtual community with live stream events June 3rd and 4th. The opening keynote is renowned neuroscientist Tali Sherritt, who will speak on how innovators and investors can harness optimism and vastly improve their decision-making skills. Other topics due for a deep dive will include smarter cities, vibrant communities, healthier living, broader thinking, agriculture in the technology age, and innovation of work, and you won't want to miss the all-out live stream pitch battle event. I'm sure it's exactly like a rap battle. If you have a pass to Inventures 2020, you already have access to all of Unbound's goodies. If you'd like access to just Unbound, there's a pass for that at InventorsCanada.com. That's I-N-V-E-N-T-U-R-E-S Canada.com. All right, Dave, um, I have to actually admit something pretty embarrassing 
And it's so obvious that this wouldn't be the case after seeing the movie. And obviously, like, when you know, like, who did some of the music. And I actually thought this movie featured the ghost of a dog. Oh, yeah. And that doesn't really happen. There is a dog in this movie, but I'm pretty sure it's a real dog. It is not a not a ghost dog. It's metaphorical, too. (laughs) Maybe. Maybe. It does play a bit of a role. Mm -hmm. Anyway, anyways, I'm a big old dummy. <laughs> I just wanted to admit that right at the very beginning. Uh, just a quick question. Did you think that the ghost dog would be wearing a sword? Yes. <laughs> I thought that like Forrest Whitaker somehow controlled the the ghost dog. I didn't realize that ghost dog was his character's name. I thought that he was just in it because I knew Forrest Whitaker. Again, I knew the poster of it and the, and the picture of it. So I knew he was in it. But I thought like maybe he controlled the the ghost dog to create like crimes or like go against bad guys or something like that. I thought this was a very different plot than what it actually ends up being. With that in mind, Kyle, what did what did you think? I loved it, but what did you think? Being surprised, uh, I really like this movie even more so than I was actually anticipating. I have a bit of a love hate relationship with Jim Jarmusch, which is I very wildly on on his movies where I'm either like, I'm totally into this or I'm like, this is very tedious and I don't really care what's going on. Name a few of his, I think coffee is a coffee and cigarettes. cigarettes. The other ones that I have seen are uh, broken flowers and only lovers left alive. Uh, Um, and like, again, there's good parts about broken flowers and there's good parts of only lovers left alive. But for the majority of them, like I just want to get on with it and do other things. Yeah. There's, there's a feeling of dragging mm-hmm. on both broken flowers yeah if that's a gym I, you know what now that you've said it of course it's a jim jarmish but my god there's by the end you're like yeah. i don't like what 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 happened what was this for uh as, as we might discover here soon i think that is very much on purpose uh from from, from him <laughs> um let's go through some background here though so ghost dog was released on may 19th 1999 at the Cannes film festival and then had a North American release in the fall of that year. So because it was a festival film release, no other films really were being released on uh, a Wednesday, I think is what it is. Currently, it is rated 7.5 on IMDb. It has a 67 on Metacritic. And on Rotten Tomatoes, 82% of the critics think that it's fresh. And 86% of the users think that it's fresh. Oh, it's fresh. (laughs) It is available on DVD or Blu-ray. End of sentence. It is not on any streaming platform anywhere. Uh, its budget was $2 million for this film. Amazing. It opened in the fall when it had a small release to $166,000. But domestically in North America, it would go on to make $3.3 million, And internationally, it would rack up another $9 million, or sorry, another $6 million. So after inflation, that is $14.4 million is what it, it kind of ended off with, which is honestly a great return for this movie. So... Good for it. Its plot description is an African-American mafia hitman who models himself after the samurai of old finds himself targeted for death by the mob. Uh, It stars Forrest Whitaker as Ghost Dog, John Tormey as Louis, Isaac Debancole, that's obviously not how you say his name, but as Raymond. That's amazing. (laughs) No, say it again. That's amazing. Or maybe like that. Uh, Camille Winbush as Perline. So let's go through some of their... Uh, film credits. So as you might suspect, Camille Winbush, who plays the little girl in this film, was born February 9th, 
1990. So she started acting as a kid. Uh, but she had quite the career before Ghost Dog. Her first role was on three episodes of the TV series Viper, where she was only four years old. Is that the Pamela Anderson show? No, I didn't look too much into it. Viper? So let's say yes. No, that's, that's VIP. VIP. Yeah, Viper, I think, is a car yeah. show. Her first film role was when she was five in the movie Dangerous Minds. Remember the movie where Michelle Pfeiffer solved racism? Uh, you know, if only that had taken. <laughs> right. It was so close. So close for just it. fixing yeah. America. Oh. Is that Omar Epps? I think Epp? Omar Epps no, uh, is in that movie, yes. Yeah. I can't remember who the, the main Oh, the main or maybe it's Mackay Pfeiffer. I it I, I, no. That would make sense. They're kind of two oh, Pfeiffers. Uh, no. Mackay Pfeiffer did the the spoof version. Right, okay. Um, with John Love. I can't remember what that movie was called, but... Uh, it's all yeah, lost in time. Uh, she was also in the movie Eraser, one of the bad later Arnold movies. That was okay. Vanessa Williams <laughs> and the Crocodile. There's a, I think there's a crocodile in that movie. And then she went to TV. She provided the voice of Ashley T. Tomasian in the Recess series, but would then be cast on the Bernie Mac show and would be in all 104 episodes of that before the show was canceled. And then was cast in the role of Lori Treacy on The Secret Life of the American Teenager for 90 episodes. So basically, that's what she was doing from 2001 until 2013. She was just on TV shows. Um, in recent years, she's returned to film, being in such things as Bachelor Lions, Everything But a Man, and Muna. Next up is The Indisputable Dozen. Try to make sense of this plot synopsis. I'm ready. Sheriff John Brown and his deputy Ron Charles are gunned down in Jamaica. Okay, cool so far. The guns of multiple perpetrators are the same as those of the slain officers due to reconstruction. Plus, the bullets match. It has become a it has become chaotic for law enforcement tracing which gun was involved in the shootings. Even so, most of those alleged and charged are already dead, except for Rose Bess Parsons, and she's faced with the death penalty. I don't really understand how no. any of that Ooh. tracks with the other. <laughs> Wait, what? There, there's mu multiple. What I think, I think what's going on that here are the is same? that so uh, crime happens, right? So like a bunch of people are dead. Ooh, crime does. Bunch of happen. people are dead. Crime does. Um, and then the guns that they find, uh, they match to other people, but those people are already dead. <laughs> so it's like who? They find uh, guns. Yeah, they just they just find guns. I, you know, I I've not found a gun before. Just walking. Oh, but if I a did, there's there's a gun. Yeah, and then just this thing matches. <laughs> you know. It matches. And the bullets match, too, so that's multiple. good. Um, Isaac uh, de Bencolet, uh born August 12, 1957. Uh, he was born in the Ivory, Co in the Ivory Coast. Oh, or Cote d'Ivoire, I think is like uh, the French. Ivoire. Ivoire. Uh, so he really does speak French. His first accredited role is in Comment Dragueur tu le Mec, or How to Flirt with All the Guys. He would continue to be in French film. Then in the late 90s, he began working in and around Hollywood films. So this film uh, began his partnership with Jim Jarmusch, and I would continue in Coffee and Cigarettes a few years later. And in the 2000s, he would be in a bunch of things. The Skeleton Key, Stay, Miami Vice, Casino Royale, The Diving Bell and the Butterfly, and six episodes of 24. Last year, he had a supporting role in the reboot of Shaft. And next up is the movie French Exit, which full circle with his co-star... Uh, it stars Michelle Pfeiffer. So its plot description is, an aging Manhattan socialite living on what's barely left of her inheritance moves to a small apartment in Paris with her son and cat. Oh, she's going to hit that. Yeah. Yeah. 
I, uh, you know, the whole time we were watching, the whole time we were sitting together in isolation watching this film together. Through FaceTime, yeah. Uh, and the machine was supplying us with the uh, with the entertainment yep. at the same time as yeah. we were watching. It's, it's, a, it's a weird, I mean, I don't understand how the internet works, but the, the machine figures it out. If you recall, I kept thinking, I didn't say this out loud, but you'll recall that I kept thinking, I recognize this guy from somewhere and I think he's great. And he was the murderous terrorist in Casino yeah, Royale. It's right. great. That's right. <laughs> Perfect. It all kind of makes sense. Now, Dave, the machine sent you some stuff uh, to your printer, your great Epson oh, printer. So bossy. Hey, machine, who's paying for my ink, bro? <laughs> Have you not been tracking your invoices properly? Uh, John Torme, born August 4th, 1937. Although he's older, he didn't start acting until the 90s, specifically in an episode of NYPD Blue when he was almost 60 years old. Then in 1997 alone, he he appeared in Jungle to Oh gosh, uh, that's a misprint by the, the machines part. Ju- jungle, jungle to Jung, which is <laughs> a jungle German to Jung. Film. It's actually about <laughs> Jungian philosophy in the jungle. It's a crazy story, a comedy, yeah. a dark comedy. Jungle to Jung. So jungle to jungle. Hold on, I'm trying to my uh, jungle to jungle. Com- <laughs> which movie was that again? <laughs> Jun- jungle. Oh god. There has to be a gag reel now, in which we start uh, gagging. Jungle to Jungle, Commandments, Kiss Me Guido, oh, come on. Kiss Me Guido, and The Real Blonde. In fact, Ghost Dog would would be his eighth film role ever, even though he had only begun three years previously. There is not a lot of info about him online, but it sounds like he may have had a bit of a stage career, not just the glitzy Broadway stages? You messed it up. Just not the glitzy... I don't think it was Broadway Mm. that he acted on. It was like... Okay, hold on a second. Let me see if I can... It was like in Hoboken or something like that. It was not... (laughs) It was not in New York. Judgy, Kyle. A little judgy again. Uh, I mean machine. As with many character actors, he's cast for his look, but he has been consistently working up until 2014 when his last credit occurred in the film She's Funny That Way as the hot dog vendor. Mm-hmm. Title role. Title, title role. role in that. Um, he has not passed away, by the way. That makes it sound like he's dead. It is it not. Did, yeah. <laughs> I was going to ask. Yeah, I was going to ask. Until 2014. Forrest Whitaker, my man. Yeah. When you take a look at his entire history, you take for granted just like how many films a, he's been in, but how many like like bit parts and like supporting roles like oh that's right he's in that movie and that movie and that movie anyways you'll find out he's got like the the sam jackson ethos work ethic mm-hmm. he's he's out there he's hustling although i, I can't remember the last time i other than uh rogue squad or uh, rogue one yeah uh, um, anyways born july 15th 1961 he's been acting since his early 20s but his first major film role was in fast times at ridgemont high in 1982 He would stick to television for much of the 80s before featuring in two huge movies in 1986, Platoon and The Color of Money. He would follow those up with roles in Stakeout, Good Morning Vietnam, and Bloodsport. That's a classic. Holds up. Are you sure? It does. Okay, okay. Uh, I mean, he gets aspirin in his eyes or something. Chalk? (laughs) Fuck. Genius, JCVD. He would continue to be in high-profile films throughout his career, such as The Crying Game, Species. Species, really? Mm-hmm. High-profile? Mr. Holland's op- Opus, Mr. Holland's Opus, Panic Room, and The Last King of Scotland. 
That movie, he would win an Oscar for Best Actor for portraying Idi Amin. Panic Room was amazing. Uh, even it kind of drags on a little bit. But uh, is that David Fincher? Panic Room? Mm. Oh, Panic Room is, yeah. That, In has, recent that years, has country music star uh, Dwight Yankum as one of the ah, people with Forrest Whitaker. Right, one of the, one of the baddies. Yeah. In recent years, you would have seen him in Arrival, Rogue One, which started him lending his voice to many Star Wars spinoffs, but also in the TV show Empire. Next up is the film Respect, which will tell the life story of Aretha Franklin. Have you seen the uh, Amazon Prime uh, docu of Aretha? No, is it good? It's like, yeah, yeah I, was, I was crying. It's excellent. It's uh, Amazing Grace. Mm, okay. It's the, it's the background uh, film they were trying to shoot, documentary of her epic performance at that uh, at that church when she sang right. Amazing Grace. Yeah, 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 yeah. Uh, this film was written and directed by Jim Jarmusch. Born January 22nd, 1953. Jim Jarmusch doesn't like the idea of the auteur, 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 yeah. auteur theory of directing. A direct quote from his is, I put a film by as a protection of my rights, but I don't really believe it. It's important for me to have a final cut, and I do for every film. So I'm in the editing room every day. I'm the navigator of the ship, but I'm not the captain. I can't do it without everyone's equally valuable input. For me, it's phases where I'm very solitary, writing, and then I'm preparing, getting the money, and then I'm with the crew and on the ship, and it's amazing and exhausting and exhilarating. Oh my God, that's a run-on sentence. Then I'm alone with the editor again. I've said it before, it's like seduction, wild sex, and then pregnancy in the editing room. That's how it feels for me. So that's, I feel that's Jim Jarmusch in in a nutshell, is like he's both entirely not pretentious and completely pretentious at the same time. (laughs) I wouldn't even say not pretentious. I would just say that he is pretentious. No, I mean, it's a a collaboration and everyone is here, but also we're all having (laughs) sex together. I'm like, wait, what? (laughs) What are you talking about? Also, someone who's got to proclaim that everybody's involved makes me a little leery of what people actually... What Listen, you're always so suspicious of people's motivations. Why don't you just allow people to have their bliss? <laughs> this, and this is why uh, I have no friends. His style has been called minimalist and unhurried. Often his movies don't have traditional narrative structure and don't include clear plot progressions. In a 1989 interview, he was quoted as saying, I'd rather make a movie about a guy walking his ghost dog <laughs> than about the emperor of China. You, you editorialized this, ghost in that sentence, but yes. You know what? Damn the machine. <laughs> I'm going to damn you in a few minutes. Uh, his first film, Permanent Vacation, came out in 1980. Since then, he has consistently made a movie every two to three years. Some of those are Down by Law, Mystery Train, Coffee and Cigarettes, Broken Flowers, Only Lovers Left Alive, and this year's The Dead Don't Die. Currently, there are no films on the horizon, but I'm sure it won't be long. That's a nice sentiment, Dave. Thank you for adding that at the end. So I know we already kind of discussed a little bit about like our overall thoughts, but because you do like it so much, Dave, what do you think it is that you enjoy so much about this movie? Well, I, I have a, a bias for samurai what's the right word, philosophies, characterizations, um, like uh, iconography. So just the idea of a samurai is uh, super cool. Um, And when you delve into it, it's it's sadistic and and insane. But um, I don't know if it's the loyalty. I think it's just swords and the strict adherence to code that makes them cool warriors. And then the idea that they are 
at least historically, allegedly, these like incredible individuals who try to become great at everything they touch. They're not supposed mm. to just be killers. So I, I have this thought that as soon as I see something with samurai, this guy's going to be very uh, single-minded, but also very wise. And so, you know, uh, we have Forrest Whitaker. I can't remember the name of the character, but he's Ghost Dog, right? And mm. he's an assassin. He's a ninja. There's that scene where he's going to his first kill and he's weaving through the public and no one seems to notice him. That's like my favorite uh, part that I noticed uh, about ghosting. I mean, it doesn't happen again in the rest of the film, but uh, he's like slinking in and then he's ruthless and efficient, but then he's not cruel. He lets the girl live. Uh, then you get this thing where he's reading these uh, books and uh, and throughout the film, he's played and written with uh, more depth as a human being rather than just uh, a mindless robot killer. And then there's the comedic beats are hilarious. I, I just... Uh, Watching this broken, the portrayal too and, and the writing of a broken mafia. I mean, this is not uh, Scorsese's mafia. This is a bunch of uh, beat up, has been um, Italian dudes sitting in the back room of a, of a, is it a Chinese restaurant or some type of uh, takeout place? Mm -hmm. There isn't a single mafioso that's like less than 65 years old and less than 200 pounds. Like, yeah. it's, uh, it's, hilarious. I mean, I think it's definitely dealing in a bit of stereotypes, but I don't think. I don't know. I don't think being cruel about it. It feels very a lived-in world at the same time. Well, the, uh, yeah, I mean, I, I don't think he means it. Well, I mean, uh, maybe I should say it's. I think it's satirical, and I think it's intentional. And uh, and to have them have breaks like uh, loving Flavor Flav, and mm -hmm. you know that stuff. I uh, love that. I was, yeah, yeah, I was LOLing a little bit. And the big thing I liked about the pacing is interjecting uh, the samurai, f you know, quotes to frame his character in the philosophies he's reading from, uh, I can't, what is it called? Ha Hagarakuri? I can't remember how to pronounce it. The Way of the, the Samurai or whatever it's, the right, actual the book, book is called. Which I thought really gives you this great tone to understand why he's doing what he's doing. Because there are some decisions that are outside of common sense rationality, I yeah. think. I mean, you know what it reminds me of? I actually had to look it up here because I couldn't quite remember how it goes. But there is a quote from The Big Lebowski, which is like the character of Walter is like, you can say what you want about the tenets of national socialism, but at least it's an ethos, right? It's like, <laughs> <laughs> yeah. which is yeah. meant to be funny and stuff. But I feel the same way about our main character here. It's like, say what you will about the way of the samurai, but at least it's a way of, of life, right? At least it's guiding him and it makes sense. I'm not going to kill the girl because it wasn't in my duty I, I wasn't told to kill i was told to kill this person and that's what i'm going to do you know i actually hearing that i think what draws me to the whole thing is the concept of integrity and you know reading historically i i doubt that samurai's actually lived with that much integrity sure, you know we yeah. just mentioned that it's, it's kind of like japan's like cowboy myth as it is in in the west like what cowboys actually were versus how they're depicted on film are drastically different if you do any even a little small bit of research on it the only difference, I, I, I think that's exactly it, except uh, you get that East-West thing where it's not lone heroes and gunslingers. It's like this um, humility, servitude, and social structure, which is something that's odd that I would actually be attracted to. But I think it's kind of neat to yeah have an ethos, have a code, and then die by it. Right. You know, he is a caricature of samurai-ism, which is awesome. And it's made even cooler that he's like, in the ghetto is this giant black dude and he it almost is depicted that he learns the way of the samurai after being saved by uh Lou, is it louis yeah yeah there's a there's a bunch of things that 
this this brings up for me. I want to just highlight some of the things that I really enjoy about this. I, I've said in the past that I just like weird films, and this definitely, I think, is one of those examples. It's like big, imposing black guy, but is also living as like by the samurai code, and he's best friends with this uh, guy who sells ice cream and only speaks French, and they don't understand each other. And he also befriends this like little girl and like uh, all this like mafioso stuff that's going on. I read some reviews that that posit this theory that Jim Jarmusch really doesn't care about the mafia storyline at all in this movie. And it's just there for like some setups to go along with it. He's really much more interested in the relationship of those other three people, which is why I think uh, for vast stretches of this, you just see uh, Forrest Whitaker, like either driving around or like just walking around and like reading from the text and the text appears on screen. I think that that's what the thematic resonance that he's trying to go with like this is the code like we're going back to the code again and this is what it is so that eventual showdown in the street is like i know exactly what's about to happen here he's gonna die by his master's hand because that's what uh, the code asks him to do i love that you know like uh, and this is also implied but like the wu-tang and rizza idea of what the wu-tang clan meant for hip-hop was very similar i mean they idolized these uh Chinese Kung Fu movies that were coming out in the 70s, etc. But those are all based on a similar idea. So they didn't have the samurai caricature, but all of those Shaolin Temple movies were about this integrity and dying for a code of honor. And so even with the underpinning uh, music and the sort of environment that this uh, movie's played in, it is a movie about the code, integrity, and for example, him being able to have this relationship with someone who doesn't speak the same language, they understand each other because they both live by their own code. They're, mm-hmm. They become predictable to each other. And I love the interplay of how they repeat each other's sentiment. It plays, it gets a little goofy at some point, but it's it's great that, that there's this loneliness that he's living on top of a roof with pigeons, but he also has this relationship, right? This is what I need you to fill me in on, Dave. As people have probably no doubt been able to tell by just the sound of my voice, I am very white. So I don't have context for A, who Riza even is. And um, I know of the Wu-Tang Clan. I don't know if I could tell you a single song that they have ever released. So, Protect your neck. Uh, so you need Cash to maybe fill in some context of, at least in 1999, who Riza was um, and why it was interesting that he was partnering with Jim Jarmusch and like what what was the context of them at this point in time so you know the disclaimer is as much as I love let's call it hip-hop and jazz and all this stuff I am not a a Wu-Tang scholar okay and there are many many people who study individual artists in their fandom Uh, so the timing is difficult for me but uh, what's important is that when Wu-Tang Clan came out um, they were an assemblage of these kids that are actually living in a hard ghetto uh, with, this is the sort of one of the originators of East Coast sort of gangster mm. sort of rap, but um, what connects these very, very strange assortment of very strong personalities was A, like uh, they shared this theme, the Wu-Tang Clan comes out of this idea of like, you know, this old Kung Fu movies, samurai ideology and and codes, but they also respected their own individualism where they made a pact that we come together to blow up the rap scene as the Wu-Tang Clan, but everybody is free and intended to disappear into their own world, we are not indebted to each other. And so Riza and Jizza, who are brothers, I think, uh, are essentially considered the core root founding members, but you know, the team is like nine rappers. And the most 
uh, publicly prominent was Method Man, who, who right. had a, both a rap and a pop set of uh, career. But like uh, Raekwon and, uh, you know, all these guys, you know, Ghost, I mean, Ghostface, they just got cool monikers and they all have different styles and they all went on to make incredibly uh, successful soul albums, which is really fascinating, on different labels. So they weren't even mm. coordinating amongst themselves. The weird thing about RZA is, like, so Jizza, the GZA, Jizza, was doing a lot of this great soul sampling, R&B sampling, and production. RZA's sort of like this genius behind it who made all these weird melodies and kind of kept them on a tone. But he's also crazy, and he always meant, even from the beginning, to be the broader cultural identity. And I think, I, I can't remember if I've seen this, but I think there's even tapes of when he brought them all into the studio. There's like a lot of really cool stories of how he, he was able to coordinate them into their first studio session. That even then he was kind of like, we're changing culture and my intent is not to be a rapper. My intent is to like affect America. And mm -hmm. so when he's getting into these projects, like, uh, you know, getting into film, getting into writing, doing all these things, he's always seemed to have this uh, single-mindedness in his own integrity that he didn't want to be typecast and he wanted to kind of do everything i mean his foray into directing you know man with the iron fists and yeah, i mean you know it's, it's pretty cheesy but uh i think he does a lot of music music production for films i i can't remember what other movies but i remember being surprised that his stuff's come up that's my topical understanding uh -huh. yeah, i'll get picked apart if anyone oh, i'm sure with hip hip-hop history listens to our <laughs> to our podcast i'm sure we'll get comments about uh missing some some good points or screwing up. I, I will say that uh, upcoming, RZA does have a new film coming out here pretty soon called Cutthroat City. So you can look for that movie that's going to be, that has uh, Wesley Snipes in it. So there you go. Oh, Wesley. I, so I, welcome back. I think too, in uh, Coffee and Cigarettes, you get a nice little portrait of, I think it's him and Jizza, right? In a, I think so, in a booth yeah. in a in a basement. It's been bar so or something. long since I've seen that movie, so I can't remember. Yeah, I got, yeah, I couldn't quote it, but I just remember how they're just pretty chill. I mean, everybody's a bit of a character of themselves, and you know, like Benini and stuff actually play characters. But I think they kind of have that thing. They're not trying to be what we consider today as a stereotypical rapper, right? Mm -hmm. Like fronting about either their luxury or success. They aren't. They aren't those type of people. They're pretty old school. They're uh, they want to they want to pull the strings from the background, which is why uh, I think it works in this film too. Uh, without that tone, I mean, the intentional thing. Every time he's in a stolen car, he's got a different CD. Yeah, yeah. With this killer track that's like uh, setting a mood. It's it's fascinating. I I love just the whole experience. Uh, the whole experience of riding with the ghost dog. You know? <laughs> Do you think that that remote thing is real? So it's actually interesting you bring that up. I actually looked it up a little bit. Definitely to unlock doors, there are such a thing. Whether it looks like that, I don't know. But there are such a things that can override. At least in 1999, there's ways to override those systems. I don't think you can start the car that way. Not in 1999. That was the one I was like, I don't know if you could do it that yeah. way. I couldn't remember if 99 already, there were cars with the push button starters. Not with uh, push, I don't think so. Like there was definitely probably remote starts for like really high end vehicles, but. Right, which is all he steals too, so. Um, but I don't, I just don't, I don't know. I did, that didn't feel like that was something that could happen in 1999, but not enough to take me completely out of the movie. It's just like, whatever, his little device that you can <laughs> steal cars with, that's fine. You saw this, I know you didn't see, see this in theaters. 
did you see it in 1999 or close to or like years and years after i'm pretty sure it would have been after i saw coffee and cigarettes mm -hmm. um, what do you think you would have felt in 1999 had you seen it at that time i don't know i think you know i think i would have loved it but what parts of it would have resonated with me it's it's more difficult to say because this movie is such a sort of, you know, indie, low-budget produced thing. It relies so much on... I mean, I was already obsessed with Japanese culture, manga, you know, all of these sort of themes of uh, around the samurai and things would have been maybe even stronger in that era. So I, yeah. I might have just lost it. Yeah, it's hard to say. Like, back then, I feel... Because I was just getting into, like, more film history and, like, quote-unquote serious film, uh, however you want to take that, I don't know how I would have reacted to this movie. I think it would have been a, a hard nut for me to crack. Although I, I say that and like a year later, I went and saw Crouching Tiger, Hidden Dragon in the theaters uh, as like a 16 year old kid. So, I mean, well, the, who knows? You know, bringing that movie up, I didn't like that movie. Mm -hmm. And I think that, you know, I was growing up watching both sort of bootleg versions of Hong Kong gangster films and then, uh, you know, any kind of martial arts samurai related anime you know all of this stuff is part of my teenagehood sort of mid 90s so for me like ang lee and and these guys that blew up in hollywood where for, i was especially at that sell age out. talking about yeah sellouts and i also felt like chai yun fat was the greatest gunslinger of hong kong history and then dressing him up as like this old school uh sword thing i i uh I, I checked out. I was like, it looks <laughs> awful. I don't. I didn't really like uh, Zhang Zhiji or whatever her name was. Uh, it didn't play well for me. If so, you say one bad thing about Michelle Yao, though, I'm going to punch you. No, Michelle is, you know, is awesome, but uh, she's the only person in that movie. Like, I love Chai Yun-Fat, too, for his previous work, but I felt like Michelle Yeoh is the only reason I was able to <laughs> to work through that film. And she actually, because she's a martial artist, so yeah, yeah. her scenes actually look proper and, <laughs> and legitimate to me. Uh and I, you know, and that was the era where like uh, Jet Li's blowing up, Jackie Chan's already kind of uh, mm -hmm. broken the scene. Uh, never mind, you know, Bruce Lee and uh, all the stuff that's happened in the prior. So it's so this is me in 1999. I don't know. I yeah, there's definitely there was definitely a moment there in the late 90s. I think that there was almost this like resurgence of uh, like Asian talent coming over into North America, which seemed to like fizzle out after five or six years. I don't know. I guess Jackie Chan still stuck around with like the Rush Hour series and that sort of thing. But I mean, that's not the same as like even his Rumble in the Bronx, which is again, American made film, but it really wasn't the same stuff. I think, I mean, as much as I think Jet Li is amazing, I think what kind of broke and lost momentum is Jackie Chan is like, you know, the Buster Keaton of martial arts. Yeah. So he, he does everything. He's a great actor. He's incredible physical. He does his own stunts. He's a great martial artist. So he's kind of like a full package. So he sets the bar so high. Yeah, yeah. And then Jet Li comes, who's uh, at least in moviedom, a better, uh, quote, unquote, air quote, better kung fu practitioner. He was known for having just everything so quick. And he's, he's like this crazy alleged childhood uh, prodigy. But, you know, he never really could speak to the English-speaking audience as well, and, and he doesn't do the comedic bits. And then, uh, and I think that those movies just weren't doing that well for Hollywood to keep giving them money. And then, you know, all the talk these days after Crazy Rich Agents comes out and a lot of these uh, younger generation Asian actors, American-born, talking about racial profiling and being told that uh, being Asian is not good-looking enough to be a star and all this stuff, despite the kind of... Uh, 
thing that's happened with Asian women <laughs> over right. the last 40 years uh, and their objectification. That's a, yeah. that's a string that you start to pull. I mean, it's like black exploitation or uh, any, any rich. I just watched Extraction, the oh, Chris Hemsworth. Yeah. How'd that go um, for you? Yeah, it's it exceptionally violent. But uh, you know what I thought was interesting is the whole thing happens in India and Bangladesh. And it looked to me like an intent to start bringing more Indian right. uh, actors and actresses into the Western movie sphere. Because they've also had trouble, particularly after 2001, to like get some credibility, even though there's, um, never mind like gorgeous men and women that come out of that region as actors and actresses. But like the they are great actors and they make... I mean, Bollywood storytelling, I, I, I have trouble following. Their movies are way too long and kind of crazy. But great actors and actresses, a lot of talent there too. And a huge, huge film industry. Well, we're going to solve it by the end of this episode. Um, is there is, it, is there anything that you want to like nitpick, criticize about this movie that you don't think holds up maybe from 21 years ago? I don't know. I mean... I think in my old age, I, I just think of everything we watch as a type of period piece. So, I mean, everything's dated, right? Uh, I, it, is, it is a very big flashback to like, even the CDs in the car to an extent, you don't see a whole lot anymore. You still do, but I mean, not not well, as much. Not, not just the CDs, but that every car had a different third party installed CD system. I love that, like, yeah. Like that little, like whatever, it's not a screensaver, but like whatever the, the thing, yeah, that, the, like the flashing thing. It's like, oh, yeah. I remember those because everyone had something a little bit different. Whenever you get a car, your parents bought a car, whatever, you always had to replace the deck. Never mind if you could afford yeah, yeah, and yeah. some big speakers. You always had to change the shitty, you know, standard tape deck they used to get in mm. the, you know, lower mid-range cars. But will young audiences understand that reference? No, I mean, those things don't exist anymore. The one thing, I mean, I, I get, I think, why it's in there. I hated him flipping his gun around to sheath it i oh I, it's like the it's like him sheathing I this uh, sword <laughs> but like the first time he did it i was like okay it looks at all and then by the end i felt like they were really doing some not close-ups of it but it just became so prominent and so i just i started hating it to be honest sure, with you sure. uh it it took the cornballness like i i i think if i could give him editorial notes i would say He's got so much cornball humor with the mafia guys and just mm -hmm. the general thing. You know, even the idea of the the sheathing of the sword, like the flipping around is sort of an American portrayal. If you watch a lot of Japanese samurai stuff, it's like this. There's a, there's a kendo art, a sword fighting art, where it's the whole thing is a single stroke and sheathing. It's oh, not right. this fencing sword fighting. That's how I picture samurais more often. And that's how they're more commonly depicted lately. Even in an action movie, they might have to do an interchange, particularly uh, with Kurosawa and Toshiro Mufune. A lot of the, the epic final battles are these like face-offs, mm -hmm. this intent glare, and then this like single, single attack, and then they sheath. And then you're like, holy fuck, what just happened? That's the kind of, I, I just feel like if you're going to sheath a sword, you don't need to flip it around and spin <laughs> it on your you, finger. I, and, yeah. <laughs> I should say though, that, that that's a good call out that I think that there is a lot of great humor that's in this movie that might get lost. Jim Jarmusch does have a bit of a weird sense of humor anyways, um, maybe from a British tradition a little bit, which is just very dry. Uh, you can sometimes miss it if you're not really paying attention, but it, it is there. I think it's meant to be a little bit like, this is kind of ludicrous, right? Kind of nudge, nudge throughout the thing. Well, and speaking to that point, I mean, I was hoping as the movie was going that I would understand 
the cartoon references more. Mm. But by the end, I had no idea. Like, I thought, is it always going to be like a Looney Tunes? But it was just cartoons to link the daughter. And like, I just couldn't understand it by the end. I, I had no idea. I don't why know if there is any greater point. Maybe there is. Maybe there is some greater point he's trying to make with the cartoons that people are watching. At a certain point, I thought it was just hilarious because it's like, you have these, the the recurring thing is that everyone is watching cartoons, no matter where you go. Like, the big mafioso guy watching cartoons, his daughter watching cartoons, ghost dog watching cartoons. And for a while, I was like, oh, they're just using it because it's like in the public domain and it's easy enough to throw it in there. But then they had the Simpsons. I'm like, well, that wouldn't have been public domain uh, yeah, at all. It, so when they start off and it's classics or, you know, Betty Boop and mm-hmm. uh, I think Woody Woodpecker, Woody Woodpecker. and all Which, can, by the way. That very specific Woody Woodpecker cartoon, I watched a bunch of times when I was growing up. It was on this like uh, cassette uh, that we, the VHS copy of like whatever Woody Woodpecker presents or something like that. So I remember literally watching that cartoon. That's the thing. And uh, I think uh, maybe again, yeah, maybe we're just dating ourselves, but it's not like we didn't live during the Betty Boop era, but a lot of these classic 30s through 60s things were on you know, Saturday mornings or oh, yeah. lunch hour or something. And, uh, and so there's a, a feel, especially the first time you meet the daughter, cause she's kind of a, you know, spectral <laughs> anomaly. She, she does not seem to be dealing with reality in a, in a particularly uh, predictable way, but also very detached. So the fact that she's reading Rashomon and, and watching cartoons, I thought it was going to be a play to her just total, detachment but as soon as itchy and scratchy showed up i was like what like what, what's going on now i i don't understand how they got involved um so that part was a little weird for me too i think it it's felt because very all of the mafia is both itchy and scratchy for more hey, violence well, so i i just felt like it was very intentional i didn't understand it yeah. and i feel like if you're gonna go that way it either needs to be explained or it needs to be a single tone right. so that the viewer's like, oh, this is meant to be metaphorical of how silly this is or something. But by the end, I, I didn't understand. What so let me meant. ask your favorite question, of course, when we get to this point, which is, do you think this has any cultural relevance? What is it trying to tell us about 1999? I don't think it was a statement about, it's kind of like when we were reading uh, the robot's description of Jim Jarmusch. I think it's like many of those fairy tales meant to, be more about a moral reflection, let's say on integrity and roles. And it's a closed, it's a closed world. Mm-hmm. Um, I don't think it says anything about, let's say music culture or class distinctions or, you know, like a race or uh, any of that. It just, it's not overtly there. And I like it for it because you can actually just uh, get separated from having to have a, a philosophical and political decision, mm-hmm. a discussion about how amazing or offensive the movie is on those terms. Uh, there feels like there's this undercurrent of some sort of meaning. And I don't know, uh, oftentimes I have to like really sit with a movie or revisit it again to like fully understand it. And I feel this is one of those movies, for me at least, which is I really enjoyed this. And I'll also feel that there is something intangible that I was not able to like fully grasp and maybe that's the point that jim jarmusch is trying to do it's like listen it's just this guy who has a code i don't there's no ultimate point to this i'm not trying to have an ultimate point to this and maybe that's what i'll eventually uh land on i don't think i enjoy the movie any more or less because of that to be honest i enjoy the ride and i enjoy the performances so much that whether there is a a message (laughs) or whatever the message is is kind of secondary to me just enjoying the uh the experience 
I just had this thought, which didn't occur when I was watching it quickly, but Louis looks exactly like the Simpsons Mafia boss character, oh, doesn't he? Yeah, he looks a little bit like Fat Tony. So maybe that's it. I wonder it. if that's why. And Ghost Dog is Homer. And oh my gosh, you've broken this whole thing <laughs> wide open. Uh, well, it's just I, I was just thinking of Itchy and Scratchy. And I'm like, maybe that's where that reference comes from. You know, as we read in his uh, quote, uh, it might have been an idea from his costume designer. You yeah, know, yeah. Uh, because he involves right. everyone in his process. Everyone. How about that? Because, I mean, I joked a little bit at the beginning, but there, there is a dog in this that he meets a couple of times throughout it. I actually really love that shot where you just see the shadow of the dog and then it eventually comes into frame. Do you have any ideas about why they have that as a reoccurring, not character, mm-hmm. but an, a recurring thing that happens? I think I always fall back when I see stuff like that, that it's meant to be, what movie we were watching earlier? It's like a spiritual, almost totem there's an iconography. Hands. Idle hands probably is probably. I, I thought we agreed we would not <laughs> mention that piece of shit by name. No, uh, like the brother in uh, She's All That mm. or uh, or the brother in uh, Varsity Blues or the brother. <laughs> so really <laughs> but, the dog uh, is his brother is what we're trying to say. Uh, well, I think it felt to me like it was this grounding central spiritual overseer. Like it's not... It's not a dog that's in his employ or his pet, uh, but it identifies with him because he's kind of this benign pit bull. Like mm-hmm. he is capable of killing anybody, but he's having ice cream talking to a girl, you know? Right. And um, as he's having that stare off, he's not offended or fearful of it. It's almost like they're just coexisting. And as he starts his descent, the dog's almost watching over him. Like they're never. He's not licking his face. Like Forrest Whitaker never licks the dog's face. So I, I mean, if I were to read too much into it, I would, I would think it's placed there intentionally. Both, uh, they probably got halfway through the script and they're like, "There's no dog in Ghost Dog, so we need one." And then I think, uh, I think there's an aspect where you know he's made this decision. He knows he's been betrayed uh, by this scenario of this assassination, and then the dog appears. It's almost like this visualization of of something watching over him. I enjoy the thought of Jim Jarmusch thinking about this, like, well, we have to have a dog in this somewhere else. Kyle Marshall from <laughs> Rocky Mountain House, Alberta will just be super confused about why there's no dog in this movie. There was also something I, w- I was reading. This was like a very recent article of someone who had actually rewatched Ghost Dog, I think on like its 20th anniversary. It's interesting how this movie, in a way, sets up there to be a sequel that never happened. Uh, right. Cause the girl picks up the gun and like, he tries like, no, like read this book and come and talk to me about it. Trying to say like, you take up this mantle, uh, sort of thing as she's a little girl, like in 20 years, her also being like around 30 years old at that point, it would be kind of a neat thing to try like a second film. We're just following her now in the kind of the same role. Well, you just reminded me of my favorite part of the, uh, scriptures, if you will, mm-hmm. um, the, Asian non-American ethos of story writing is that there's a beginning and there's an end. Yeah. And even though it's implied that, let's say, the energy of the plot will move on, I mean, I think the point is that the story's over and just, you know, it's over. It's a closed loop for what it is. And yeah, you could, in the American writing sense, look at the surviving daughter of the mafia and then this girl picks up the gun and all of a sudden you have Kill Bill Volume 1. But I, I like it better because... It's just done? Um, well, I mean, you say that there's a beginning, middle, and end, and yet there's been 932 episodes of Pokemon. So who knows? Who knows at this point? Uh, Japanese TV shows are a fundamentally different beast. <laughs> yeah. Well, it's like they're comic books. Oh, my God. Yeah. 
Like the serialized ones. We're done here. The uh, the machine has told us that we need to now wrap this up. So let's go into some trivia for Ghost Dog, The Way of the Samurai. So Ghost Dog shoots handsome Frank first in the stomach, then in the chest, then in the head. These shots follow the same pattern as seppuku, Japanese ritual suicide, in which the first cut with a sword or knife is made across the belly, the second cut up towards the sternum, and finally the suicide dips his head and is decapitated by his assistant. A little interesting thing, a little flourish that they put into the into the movie. I'm trying to remember, I don't know if it was in Tom Cruise's epic, The Last Samurai, mm-hmm. or if it's just been in so many The Last Samurai, Samurai film ever made, actually, weirdly enough. Uh, <laughs> Um, but how the throat and beheading can also be done for honor yeah, quickly so that the suffering is uh, minimized right. or uh, done poorly if uh, the person is doing it truly because they brought shame. But again, these are all novelizations. Who knows when you look at the actual history? It might have even been like two of my favorite books are uh, Musashi and uh, Taiko by, um, I don't remember the author anymore. But if you're, if you're looking to read uh, Samurai uh, works uh, you need to check those out talking about japanese works and uh, ghost dog and louis have differing recollections of their first meeting this is a reference to the story rashomon where people give varying accounts of the same event one of the greats which i have not seen yet but yes one of the greats i thought it was great i was surprised that younger forest was portrayed by his younger brother oh yeah i that i, I uh, was when i was looking through the credits i didn't realize that, that was what it is. But yeah, Forrest Whitaker's younger brother plays him as a younger man. I like that that setup. I mean, in the Rashomon sense that uh, it also gives them different motivations and it makes you wonder about your own memories, Kyle. Oh, this happens all the time with me. It's like when you start to like, no, no, no. Like I remember this hundred percent. Like that's what happened to me. It's like, no, that's what you think happened to you. And there's no way to actually define if that was real or not. So then you get to like have a spiral out of that. <laughs> this is my world. Let's spiral. We, we can do it. Dave, you have this a couple of uh, trivia things, I think. Oh, yeah. There's Push that button. To be done here. <clears throat> All right. In several scenes in the movie, the main character can be seen wearing a shirt that has Chinese writing on it. The text is from the Qing dynasty and means all things are impermanent. This is the rule of creation and destruction. Once created, already extinguished, silently ending is the path to happiness. How do you feel about that? I love that stuff. I mean, uh, when I read uh, any Buddhist work, Tao, uh, Chinese history, the one book I have trouble reading is Art of War because it gets so, yeah. But This is why uh, I keep you close though, Dave. This is the thing, you know, one of the things that I used to say, and I don't know if this is factually true, but Eastern philosophies uh, tend to come out of, uh, the east more vigorous oh. <laughs> more vigorous conflict eras whereas western philosophy generally comes out of these big empires so uh, when i think of like a socrates or a plato or all these people or like the uh, catholic philosophers they're kind of just i mean they're suffering in their own way but they're kind of these upper elite people that are chilling at, in their hubris and so they end up in this like big theoretical things but eastern philosophers tended to be um also elites, but in time where their king or their liege could easily die the next day. And so they have this like real practical approach. And so you read, you know, poetry like this and the self-awareness that of impermanence, that everything, you know, mm-hmm. shouldn't even be valued for what you think is valuable. I, I love that stuff. There's a, there's a great spiritual uh, message in there that is an ideal. It's impossible to attain because, you know, Right. We love stuff. Look but, at Socrates. Uh, oh, look at this. I drink Hamlock. Way to go, buddy. <laughs> go pound well, sand. 
Uh, you know, you get to Plato and he's like, the forms, there's a true perfect, you know, yeah. tree with a capital T. You're like, well, I had to read I don't all know of that, that for, of all things, English literature is like, if you strip it all the way back, it's all back to some of those Greek philosophers. Yes. So when you read like Plato and stuff and some of it's like interesting, but it's like, I just disagree with your entire premise. <laughs> so it's like, <laughs> well, a lot of people did. It's like, it's That's hard why. to like, right. There's so many philosophers and stuff like that. I was like, okay. And then you get into Freud, I'm like, I get it, but like, no. <laughs> yeah, it's Freud's, yeah, been kind of, I don't want to say debunked, but debunked. Yeah, it's definitely a pushed away thing. a lot, yeah. What's your last yes. trivia? What's your last trivia thing? Um, when Ghost Dog is in the park just before Raymond, the Haitian ice cream man is introduced, the crypts in the park are rhyming to the beat of Raekwon's 1995 song Ice Cream, which is produced by the RZA, who also composed the film's score. Nice little symmetry. Yeah, I also love how much street cred he gets. It's my favorite little nuance that he's like this loner, kind of weird pigeon man, <laughs> but like everybody knows he's ghost dog. Whatever he's been well, doing. I think that's what the, the brilliant part of the movie is. Like, yes, everyone, like, I, I don't know how to say this, like on the street knows who he is, but none of the mafia people do. I don't know who he is. I don't know what his name is. I don't know where he lives. Yeah. Like that kind it's of amazing. thing. It's amazing. Yeah. Yeah. Because he's got, he's got that street cred, that respect. I mean, that's an essential. Uh, I don't know if that's still true. We live in a bit of a more commercial sort of world about, I don't know what urban street cred is anymore, but back in the day, like if you could walk through, I mean, I'm presuming whatever, Harlem or pre-Brooklyn, Brooklyn or mm -hmm. wherever, Staten Island or... And like everybody's just from rival gangs, different colors, different, you know, paths of, uh, of things. They're all just like, oh shit. You know, I think, I think, mo yeah, I think it's most gangs nowadays kind of look like formula one drivers where they just have a lot of different patches on their outfits. And so it'd be like, we're the Crips, but sponsored by Epson number one in printing. <laughs> I thought, I thought you were going to uh, describe kind of like mission impossible. Everybody's in tack gear right, right. and uh, yeah, like full metal helmets with these, like, you know, actually it's probably somewhere in between there. They probably are sponsored at this point. Oh, probably. We're going to get shot, Kyle. I oh, think uh, yeah. we'll have to be careful. <laughs> okay, so Dave, it's time to rate this movie and see where it lands on our list. Of course, everyone can go and take a look at our list by going to our Letterboxd page, which is letterboxd.com slash KDVSTM. And KDVSTM, Kyle Dave versus the Machine, is also our handle on both Twitter and Instagram, which you can also go and follow if you want. Uh, but what would, you, what would you rate Ghost Dog? I think in spite of all my personal bias, I'm, I think I'm going to rate it a four. I don't know why. My brain just threw the number four at me. Parts of me that are a fan would automatically say five, but I think four is a more apt thing overall just because uh, there's something both understated <laughs> right, right, right. and amazing about it. But uh, yeah, I think I'm going to sit on a four. So uh, this means that we have a tie. Okay. Hold on. Hold uh, God, on. I always forget to give my rating, don't I? Okay. Kyle, so, man, nobody's in your head but yourself. Let's let's that's what let's you lay think. it out. That's you think. Let's, Listen, I have a very different recollection of how this conversation went. So I am giving it a little bit higher than that. Like I when I say I enjoyed this, I really enjoyed it. So I'm giving it a four point five, which means that with our rating system, that is four point two five. Of course, we round down. Uh, but this does mean it's tied currently. So Ghost Dog is tied with All About My Mother. What do you think? Would you rate Ghost Dog above All About My Mother or is All About My Mother a better film for you? I would say, yeah, I would only put Ghost Dog ahead of All About My Mother just because of my personal bias. But if we were thinking about filmmaking and plot structure and, you know, like actual thing, All About My Mother's 
a, a superior, <laughs> it's a superior endeavor in a film world. But I would personally uh, put Ghost Dog up because I, I would actually watch Ghost Dog again. Okay, well, uh, I think All About My Mother is slightly better. So I don't know how we want to defeat this tiebreaker. <laughs> I think other than Rock, Paper, Scissors, I think I'll, I'll concede. Okay, I, this, because this I, time. I, I I I've conceded in the past. Movie. You can concede this time. So that means that Ghost Dog, though, will enter our list at the number four position. Once again, you can go to Letterboxd and take a look at our complete list of 1999. We should also take a look at what we're going to be reviewing next week, Dave. Uh, let me just push this button here. Uh-oh. Don't what? You're going you're gonna to hate, you're gonna hate well, this, Dave. I'm so sorry. Why do you look so much in the doldrums? Next week, we're going to be talking about Star Wars Episode One: The Phantom Menace. No. <laughs> I'm sorry. I, don't, I don't make the rules here, Dave. I just, I just don't. I didn't, I didn't uh, even notice you have a big, long sword attached to you. I didn't even notice that for this entire conversation. I was just going to say, you know, there was a time, speaking of 99, where I could have given you the names of the different types of samurai swords. So the katana is only, you know, the main thing, but the, there's a shorter blade and there's a particularly long blade and we can mm. Google the name of it, but that's what I'm holding here. Yeah. And noticing you trying to slap your machine um, while I step out the back, uh, I might suggest you try to chop this effing thing down uh, right. with this giant sword, if you can lift it up. Oh, uh, uh, uh. Why is it called oh, blue steel?